So as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, either in your Bible or your Bible app or in the bulletin, I'm thinking this morning about the word with, W-I-T-H, the word with. You know, the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that Isaiah Uh, predicted that a virgin would give birth to a son and they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second advent uh, that we look forward to, his his coming again, um, we already read this morning from John 14, his second coming will be the fulfillment of his promise to come and to take us to be with him, take us to himself so that we might be with him where he is forever. And that's, that's what we celebrate in Advent. We celebrate his first coming and we long for his second coming. But in Ephesians this morning, we're going to see that the promise of him taking us to be with him where he is, is in a sense already being fulfilled, is already true. We are with him. See if you notice that as I read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and we'll focus on 4 through 7 this morning. Would you stand with me and hear the word of the God who loves his church, who loves you? Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing, it it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks be, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, preachers like to tell stories. We like to tell stories, and I I try to find a story each week or some illustration that will grab your heart. But preachers also get to listen to stories. They get to listen over a cup of coffee or breakfast or in a living room, um, sometimes through tears, your stories. 
we get to hear you tell the stories of what, what is happening in your life. Um, well, this morning, I don't have a story to offer you to get us started. I don't have a story that will grab your heart. But what I do have, I do have a pastor's heart that has been grabbed by your stories and the story of Jesus this week. Um, So if it's all right, that's all I've got to give you at the start of this, and actually through the whole thing. Um, I've been sitting and listening to a lot of stories lately. Um, And uh, there's stories that make that line from uh, Joy to the World very vivid. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Friends, the sins and the sorrows are growing. The thorns are thick. The curse is real. And I'm struggling this week. Let's just be real, okay? I'm struggling with the weight of the sins and the sorrows and the thorns and the curse. I'm not depressed. I'm just heavy with your hurts and the hurts of friends that I have too in my own. Uh, And I've, I've heard, I think, in some of the hearts of the folks who have told me stories, um, even this week, and, and I've heard it in my own heart, this question. You know, Paul says in verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I've heard, I think, the question in the midst of the sins and sorrows, where's the kindness? Where's the kindness? This doesn't feel kind to me. And I know God's heart, I know his, I know he's good, I know he's, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel good right now. It doesn't feel kind. And so this morning, just for a few minutes, I, I honestly just want to kind of try to give you a distilled version of all the swirling and wrestling that's been going on in me as I've wrestled with this passage this week um, to help us deal with that question, where is his kindness when the sins and sorrows are growing and the thorns are thick and the curse is real. So I'm going to make a statement and then I'm going to unpack it for a few minutes and then I'll come back to kindness. That's where we're headed. Here's the statement that kind of 
formed for me that, that I think is sort of the, the truth that I want you to walk away with this morning. Jesus came to be God with us so that we could become us with him. Jesus came to be God with us so that we might become us with him. Let's unpack that a little bit. Jesus came to be God with us. Jesus came to be God with us to deal with the sins and the sorrows and the thorns and the curse. And Paul, we, we saw this in detail last week, and I just want to remind us that Paul describes the sins and the sorrows and the thorns in verses 1 through 3. Remember last week I told you that he said uh, we, were, we were corpses, we were dead to God. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, our rebellion against God. We were captives. We were held captive in the grip of the world's way of thinking and in the power of Satan. And we were held gripped by our own uh, me-first desires, uh, just being carried along by whatever our bodies and minds wanted when they wanted them. So we were corpses and we were captives, and because of that, we were condemned. Sins and sorrows and thorns and the curse that was on us because we were condemned. But in verse 4, as we saw last week, those two glorious words, but God, ring out and they interrupt the sins and sorrows. And this is what God's people had been waiting for for centuries. You know, before the angel came and talked to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and made the announcement to the shepherds, there had been 400 years of silence, no word from God. No prophet that spoke on behalf of God. Silence. And the darkness was deep. The sins and the sorrows and the thorns were thick and heavy. And God's people were longing for the promise of the coming of the one who would make all things new. Where was he? Where is his kindness? And I kind of imagined that when uh, the angel showed up in the temple that day and said to Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and that was kind of the beginning of this new thing God was doing of bringing Jesus to be God with us. Um, I kind of imagined that announcement as if the angel said, stepped into the, to the room and said to Zechariah, but God! kind of imagined that uh, when he showed up and said to Mary, greetings, favored one. I'm about to wreck your life. <laughs> he came and he was saying, 
to Mary and to all of God's people. But God, this isn't over. The story's not done yet. But God. And when the angels appeared to the shepherds that night in the field, in a giant chorus, they said, But God. God is coming to be with us. And as we saw last week, God coming in the flesh as Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sin, rising again to life uh, for our rescue, delivering us from our deadness, delivering us from our captivity to sin and Satan in the world, delivering us from the condemnation we deserve, God with us made us alive and made us his. God showed us his kindness there. But it didn't stop there. God with us has now become us with God. And this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2 when he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. See, now we are with him. This is what uh, Bible teachers and theologians throughout church history have called union with Christ that now we are one with him. Um, it's mysterious. It's glorious. There's no way I'm going to be able to explain it in a 30-minute sermon. But I want to try to at least get us to think about it a little bit more. And um, it's like um, when Eric talked about a few weeks ago his Black Ford Ranger, and once you have a Black Ford Ranger, then you start seeing black Ford Rangers everywhere. Well, when you learn about union with Christ, you start seeing it all over the Bible. Especially Paul, over 160 times, Paul said something like, in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus, in the Lord, with him, in the beloved. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's already said it, I don't know how many times, but go back and read. It's a lot. And the idea of union with Christ, I think, and others, I only think this because someone else said it, and I think, oh, this makes sense, uh, started with when Paul came to be confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. I want to read you just briefly the first part of that story again so that you can remember what happened. Um, Saul, was his Hebrew name, was at this time uh, trying to wipe out the church, wipe out these followers of the way, they were called, these followers of Jesus. And Luke says in chapter 9, but, but Saul, still breathing, <coughs> breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, that, that's where, where Paul's life changed completely. But what he said here had to have been confusing to Paul when he first heard it. Why are you persecuting me? Maybe that's why he said, who are you? I'm aware I've been persecuting some folks, but which one are you? And when he says, I am Jesus, meaning I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one that these these folks have been following as the Messiah, you're persecuting me. Now that, that folks, is a beautiful picture. I I think, and, and others think, that this might have been what sealed in Paul's mind this understanding of union with Christ because what Jesus was saying is, if you persecute them, you are persecuting me. We are that united. We are that together. You can't, what you do to them, you do to me. Remember Jesus in Matthew 25 said, what you've done to the very least of these, my brothers, you've done to me. Jesus chose to associate himself with his followers forever. First, by coming and taking on human flesh and becoming with us, and then by his spirit uniting us with him. And there's lots of uh, pictures of this in the New Testament. Paul talks about uh, Jesus is the head and we are the body. Uh, neither one does well without the other. The early church fathers and the reformers later, uh, I've read, have said, uh, have explained it this way. Jesus essentially was saying to the Father, I'm not coming back without them. I have chosen to make them part of me forever. We're united to him. We're in union with him, like a head and a body. Another picture Paul gives is marriage, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 5, when he says that he's talking about marriage, but he says, understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about Christ and his church. The two become one flesh, and so as a man and a woman are united together in marriage, so we are united with Christ. And then Jesus himself gave the illustration of the vine and the branch. The vine is connected to the branch. They are united, and the vine receives its life from the branch. So this is what, this is what Paul is talking about here. Jesus came to be God with us so that he could make us be us with him united to him. And in doing so, Paul says, he made us alive with him, he raised us with him, and seated us with him. 
we were dead. But united to Jesus, we have the life of Jesus. We were entombed. But united to Jesus, we're raised from the grave. The grave no longer has power over us. And we were um, his enemies. But now, united with Jesus, we are seated at the right hand of God with him, even now. One, one thought um, about the advantage of being united to Jesus. Last week, I told you that um, we were once uh, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and I described to you how uh, the Greeks had two words for air. One talked about, um, one word talked about the air that sort of sits on the earth and and covers the earth sort of like a fog. It's the air that's closest to the ground. But they had another word for air that was above that. And that air, they, they thought, was more pure and clear and fresh, um, otherworldly, obviously. Well, the word Paul used here for uh, spirit of the power of the air was that lower air. Uh, and Satan rules this, this air that's around the earth. He rules this atmosphere, so to speak. Well, when you're united with Christ and the body of Christ has a head who is Jesus and the head is in heaven at the right hand of God, the body may be down here where the spirit of the power of the air is ruling, and we may be living in this air, but our head is in heaven. So it's kind of like if you're snorkeling, you may be submerged underwater, but you're getting air from up here. That's just one picture of how we, being united with Christ as his body, we receive life from the one who is where life is. And we may live in this darkness, in this fog, but we, we are supplied with the air of heaven through our head, the Lord Jesus. And that's why we come to worship. <laughs> we come so we can breathe. We come to be connected to our head again to remind ourselves that he is in heaven breathing for us. But... Since he is seated at God's right hand, he is also over, as Paul said in chapter 1, all the dominions and thrones and powers that there are. And so while we may live down here um, where Satan rules, our head rules in heaven. We are citizens of another kingdom. Those are some of the advantages of being united with Christ. Um, We are no longer dead in our sin. We are no longer captive to Satan, the world, and our flesh, and we are no longer condemned. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, anyone who is in Christ is 
uh, there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So united to Christ, we get everything Jesus gets from his Father. And that is how he has shown us his kindness. He's shown us his kindness in our greatest troubles, in our greatest distress. Our greatest trouble was that we were dead to sin, captive, and under his condemnation. And Jesus, in his kindness, united us to himself, and now we get what the Son of God gets, life, power, and the love of his Father. What does this have to do with struggling with knowing whether God's kind in the middle of my troubles? Here's my, here's my shot at that. If he's shown us kindness already by uniting us to himself in resolving our greatest troubles, then we can know that now united to him, being with him, he will continue to show us his kindness. In fact, that's what Paul says, that he made us alive together with Jesus. He raised us with Jesus. He seated us with Jesus so that he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in the coming ages from now on. If he was kind to us to rescue us, to save us by his grace from those things, his kindness is guaranteed in what we are experiencing now. And so, God's kindness to you is not based on the worst thing you've ever done. He doesn't measure his kindness by your record. He measures his kindness toward you because you're united to Jesus by Jesus' record. So when you struggle with thinking, how could God love the likes of me? God's kindness, now that you're united to him by faith, you're united to Jesus, God's kindness is not based on the worst thing you've ever done. It's based on what Jesus has done for you. Ah, but there's another version of that. God's kindness to you is also not based on the last best thing you've done. A friend of mine said that to me this week when I was struggling about not having performed well. He said, God's love for you, God's kindness to you is not based on your last best performance. It's, it's based on Jesus' last best performance for you because you're united to him, that's, that's good news. <laughs> and finally, God's kindness toward you is not based on what you see from where you sit. God's kindness toward you is not based on and is not measured by what you see from where you sit. Because you are seated with Christ. 
in the heavenly places. God's kindness to you is measured by the fact that he sees you seated with his son next to him as his son or daughter. I'm trying to figure out what that, how that works in my own life. <laughs> when from where I sit, things look rough, sins and sorrows, thorns, curse. I'm trying to learn that because I'm united to Christ, that I measure God's kindness toward me by his kindness toward Jesus. Let's help each other remember that God became, Jesus became God with us so that we could be us with him forever and know his kindness. Father, there you go. That's what I can do. (laughs) And I ask that you would bless Bless your word this morning and help me. Help me and my friends, my brothers and sisters here to believe it. To believe that your kindness is measured by this table and not by our troubles. God, have mercy on us. We struggle. But we don't struggle alone. Because you have come to be with us. And you have made us with you. Help us to struggle with you. Not so much against you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.